Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, my name is Grzegorz Stets, and I'm an eChina analyst at Merrick's. Welcome to the second part of our three-episode series on the EU's position in the Indo-Pacific. In this series, following the release of the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy, we investigate what the EU wants and can do in the region, and how does this impact the bloc's relations with China. In today's episode, we talk with Helena Legarda, a senior analyst at Merix, who is an expert on China's defense and foreign policy and its geopolitical implications. She's also the lead author of Merrick's China Security and Risk Tracker. Helena, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. So today we're going to talk about the security aspects of the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy. And security and defense and human security are listed as the last two of the seven priorities of the EU in the region. And the fact that they were included isn't part a reflection of this evolving geopolitical situation and in part a result of increasing security tensions in the Indo-Pacific. And this, of course, is related to China and two specific areas, South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. So, Helena, just how unstable is the situation in the Indo-Pacific? That's a very great question. And I think the first thing that has to be said is that tensions are clearly increasing in the Indo-Pacific. As you mentioned, the South China Sea and, and Taiwan are the obvious regions to look at. Uh, but also when you look at the broader region and the, the geopolitical tensions and competition and the overall balance of power, things are shifting. And the situation is fairly unstable at the moment. As the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy mentions, China's military buildup, of course, is um, one of the elements to consider here. And we have seen... For example, when you look at Taiwan, um, a much more aggressive China with very regular, not to say constant, PLA Air Force incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. I mean, over the last few days, it's been daily. They've beaten records in terms of the number of planes, which, of course, is meant to be a show of force and a demonstration to both domestic but also international audiences that Beijing wants Taiwan to be reunified, to use the, the CCP's language here, and that they are willing to use force to, to achieve that goal if need be. That, of course, is increasing tensions. Taiwan is already calling for the West to express support for them. They're mentioning the fact that China may actually invade the island over the next few years. So it's a very tense situation at the moment. And then when you look at developments such as AUKUS, so the, the recently announced security pact between Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom, we also need to consider how Beijing will react uh, to, to that development. And what I would say is that that is actually likely to increase tensions and instability in the region further, for the very simple reason that Beijing is most likely going to double down on its military buildup and military modernization processes to try and stave off any pressure that this partnership may put on, on China and on China's ambitions in the Indo-Pacific and in the South China Sea and Taiwan more specifically. So in short, 
yes, the, the region right now is fairly unstable. Tensions are running quite high. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, especially with the 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of China coming up next year. This wish uh, from Beijing to show that they are a rather relevant actor, to show that they are a global power, that's going to remain there. It's very unlikely that uh, Xi Jinping, that the Chinese leadership will be willing to take a step back uh, with such a, a key date in the party calendar coming up. So tensions are running high and they're likely to remain that way for, for the foreseeable future. So the tensions are running high, but what does this actually mean for the EU? Is this primarily being considered in Europe through the lens of economic security and ensuring that maritime trade routes just keep being open and the trade keeps flowing? Or is there maybe more to it? It's a combination of issues, I would say. Again, looking at the EU's recently released Indo-Pacific strategy, the element of trade is, is very important. You know, the EU being a global trade and, and economic power, the security of sea lines of communication and of trade routes that go through the Indo-Pacific are absolutely fundamental. So that, of course, plays an important role here. But the EU is also shifting its, its stance and its approach to the Indo-Pacific to consider other, I guess, more strategic or more geopolitical issues. And um, I think probably top of the list is defending the rules-based international order, which is absolutely fundamental for the security of the EU and just the interest of the EU in general. Those rules that we talk about when we talk about the rules-based international order are what underpins our current global order. Um, so the EU is very invested in defending those. And of course, China's behavior and ambitions in the Indo-Pacific pose clear challenges, even threats to those rules and to that global order. So I think that is the second element here. So yes, we have the, the trade component driving the EU's increased interest in the Indo-Pacific. But on the other hand, we have this more strategic and geopolitical component, which is the concern with the rules-based international order. And when it comes to those geopolitical considerations, very often what comes to the top of the mind are, of course, security and defense issues. So what are actually the projection capabilities that the EU and maybe even the individual member states have in the Indo-Pacific? It has to be said that the EU's military capabilities are very limited, especially when we're looking about capabilities that would allow Europe to project power in the Indo-Pacific, uh, especially when we're looking at the Eastern Indo-Pacific. I mean, you know, the European Union's definition of Indo-Pacific is a bit broader, and it goes from East Africa all the way to East Asia. So the EU is a lot more present in, in East Africa. We have the EU NAP4 Atalanta mission, uh, which is a counter-piracy operation of the Gulf of Aden. That's ongoing, and, and European member states do have capabilities to deploy there. But when we look at East Asia, so let's consider Taiwan or the South China Sea, fairly limited. The UK has some capabilities, France does as well, but the rest of European member states, they wouldn't really be able to deploy kind of substantial assets to the region in support of any military operation uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So when it comes to the sort of hard power military capabilities, the EU's ability to become a very kind of central 
actor in the Indo-Pacific is, is quite limited. So if those military capabilities are so limited, then what's the significance of the European military presence in the region? It's again a bit of a mix of issues. I mean, first of all, we need to admit that what the EU Indo-Pacific strategy calls for is for the EU to support enhanced presence, naval presence, by member states. So it doesn't exactly call for an EU-wide mission to the Indo-Pacific. So I can imagine that in the short term, what we're going to see is the EU trying to coordinate among member states and trying to support France or other member states that may be willing and able to, to deploy to the region. But regardless, I think the objective here is quite symbolic. Uh, it's still important. Uh, symbolism in, in international politics and in geopolitics is still an important thing to do. And it's a, it's a signaling mechanism, I would say. It's a signaling mechanism that the EU cares about what happens in the Indo-Pacific, is aware of the relevance that developments in the region have for the global order and for the EU's own interest and security, and that it is willing to take a step forward and become more involved. Yes, when we're talking about hard power, as I mentioned, the EU's role is going to be limited, but there's other things that the EU can do and that are also listed in the strategy with regards to information sharing, with regards to cooperation with like-minded allies and partners in the region, and when it comes to capacity building, among other things. And we're going to get to both of those topics just in a second, but maybe first still talking about those hard military capabilities and power projection. Earlier this year, we've seen France sending its nuclear submarine to the South China Sea, and Germany has recently sent its Bayern frigate to the Indo-Pacific. So what do those specific two actors are trying to achieve with those respective missions? Is it just political signaling? And if so, then what and to whom? I think those are two different cases. France is an Indo-Pacific actor. It has territories in the region and it has always been present to a greater or, or lesser extent. So these deployments to the Indo-Pacific are just, on the one hand, a continuation of existing policy, and on the other hand, I think an attempt by France to demonstrate and to signal that it is an Indo-Pacific power and that it will remain active in the region. And this, I think, is a signal, on the one hand, to the United States and other allies and partners that France is relevant in the Indo-Pacific, and on the other hand, a signal to China that regardless of China's ambitions to sort of become the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific and to try and prevent any other countries from conducting military exercises or even just kind of navigation through the South China Sea, France will not stand for that and that it will defend the rules-based international order and UNCLOS and international law. So that's France on the one hand. When we're looking at Germany, I see this a little bit more as a political signaling mechanism, also aimed at allies and partners on the one hand and China on the other, of course. It's a, it's a two-pronged strategy. But keeping in mind that Germany sent one single frigate that didn't conduct any large-scale military exercises with countries in the region, it also didn't link up with the United States or with the UK. Um, this was more, I would say, a demonstration that 
Germany has realized the, the importance that developments in the Indo-Pacific have, again, for its own interests and security and also for the European Union's. And I think that's what this was meant to signal. Germany's aware that this is important. Germany wants to do more in the Indo-Pacific. Germany wants to be more involved. But keeping in mind that Germany doesn't really have the military capabilities to become a very relevant military actor in the Indo-Pacific. So yes, uh, they can send a frigate to conduct, again, port calls, small drills, etc., but they can't do a lot more than that. So this was more symbolic than anything else on the German case. And talking about the German case, one other thing that I found interesting was the case of Bayern Frigate's request to dock in Shanghai, which was denied by the Chinese side. And uh, that basically leads me to my next question. What have been the reactions on the Chinese side, both to the French mission and to the German mission in the region that we've just discussed? The reactions from China have been fairly angry, more so in the French case than in the German case. But from China's perspective, these deployments by European countries to the Indo-Pacific, especially when it comes to countries that have traditionally not been very uh, important actors, especially in the military sphere in the region, such as Germany, China clearly sees them as signals that European member states are to a certain extent, cooperating more with the United States and that some sort of coalition may be forming to try and confront China's behavior and ambitions in the region and to, in the CCP's eyes, keep China down. So, as I said, Beijing's reaction has been quite angry. Both France and Germany, but mostly France, have been accused of triggering instability in the region of going there to try and pick a fight, of taking sides with the United States. Uh, Beijing has used uh, these lines that it often does, accusing France and to lesser extent Germany, but both parties of Cold War thinking. So again, keeping in mind Beijing's concern that a coalition of Western countries and, and allies may be forming to become more active in the Indo-Pacific and to try and confront China, in particular in the South China Sea and over Taiwan. In the German case, the reaction was a little bit more muted. So when the mission by the Bayern frigate was announced, Beijing effectively just warned Berlin to be careful and to clarify its intentions. That was the initial reaction. Then there was a quite a long period of just quiet. Uh, and then once Beijing rejected Germany's application to conduct a port call in Shanghai, that's where, to my mind, became a little bit clearer that regardless of what Berlin was trying to tell Beijing, that this was a mission that wasn't aimed at anybody, it wasn't just about China, it was about Germany implementing its Indo-Pacific guidelines and becoming more involved in the region, that Beijing didn't see it that way. That Beijing very clearly saw this as an attempt by Germany to again link up with other allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific to try and confront China. So Germany was, I think to a certain extent, trying to play it both ways. So sending a signal to the US and other partners that Germany cares and Germany is willing to become a little bit more involved in the Indo-Pacific militarily, with limitations, of course, based on the 
military capabilities that the German Navy has, while on the other hand, trying to send the signal to China that this wasn't about confronting China, that this was just a broader mission following Germany's very broad Indo-Pacific guidelines meant to just build up partnerships in, in the region and defend the rules-based international order more broadly. So Germany tried to send both signals simultaneously, and clearly Beijing just did not buy that. Referring to this uh, idea of sending signals, would you then say that there was just a misunderstanding of how Beijing is going to interpret Germany's signal? And if so, would that be an example of a wider trend of miscalculation or misunderstanding of how Beijing is going to interpret actions by the European side? And in your view, would that be an isolated incident uh, or, or maybe a wider trend uh, on the European side to, to miscalculate China's reactions? Or perhaps the reaction was already calculated in, into the decision? What would be your take? That's a really great question. I think it definitely does reflect a certain lack of awareness of how Beijing may react and of what sort of arguments and, and points you can make uh, when it comes to, to relations with Beijing and to an issue that it's as sensitive as this one for the Chinese leadership. So the South China Sea, Taiwan, they're very much considered core interests for the Chinese leadership for the Communist Party. Uh, so I think there's definitely a certain lack of awareness. I think on the other hand, especially when it comes to the buy-in mission, I think there's an element of compromise within the German administration. The mission itself was very heavily pushed forward by the German Minister of Defense, AKK. She was the driving force behind this. She really wanted to do it. She wanted to make a statement that Germany was going to be present in the region. Germany wanted to defend the rules-based international order, and that, of course, one of the countries that is seen as being the biggest threat to the rules-based international order in the Indo-Pacific is China. But there were also other elements in the German government within various ministries and departments, also the chancellery, that didn't want to send that strong a message to Beijing. So there was a lot of internal discussions and, and negotiations, and I think this was sort of the, the compromise solution. That's important to keep in mind. Even though at the EU level and at the member state level, policies towards China are shifting, there's a lot more consideration of strategic and geopolitical aspects, uh, and we're moving a little bit away from the more traditional trade and economic ties above all approach to relations with China, the shift isn't complete. There are still disagreements, both at the EU level, at the member state level, and across member states. So those have to be considered when we look at missions like these one, and we try to figure out where exactly they came from. And then referring to the issue that you raised, this Chinese assessment that the EU's move or the member states move into the Indo-Pacific might be part of a wider coalition building. So are the European efforts complementary to AUKUS, Quad and other frameworks um, related to security that we see in the region? And if so, in what way 
could the European partners cooperate with uh, with other actors active in the security arena in that region? I think their efforts can be complementary, but there's also a fair bit of overlap. What we've seen over the last year or two is a bit of a proliferation of these arrangements and, and small groupings of countries all wanting to become increasingly present in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and this is all very recent. So we're going to have to see how it develops. So you look at AUKUS, you look at the Quad, you look at NATO starting a discussion on what it should do about China. You look at transatlantic cooperation on China, including the Trade and Technology Council, but not exclusively. And then in the, the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy and efforts to be more present in the region. So again, necessarily, there's going to be overlap across all of these um, groupings and arrangements and, and developments. But this doesn't mean that there's no space for Europe to become a more relevant actor in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, when we talk military capabilities, as we discussed, yes, Europe is not going to become a very relevant actor. I think that is the fact that we all have to admit, at least not in the short term. The, the military capabilities are just not there for Europe to become a, a kind of a military power in the Indo-Pacific. But when we're looking at issues like defense of international law and the rules-based international order, whether we're looking at issues related to, say, cybersecurity or trade routes or non-traditional security, the EU has a lot to offer there, whether it's in terms of information sharing, in terms of capacity building, or simply in terms of being present and engaging with partners. So there's plenty of space for Europe to do more in the Indo-Pacific, but given how recent these developments are and how new the Indo-Pacific strategy is, we're just going to have to see how and when it materializes. And that is exactly going to be our final question in this conversation. What are the future projections and what is going to materialize in your view from the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy in terms of peace and security activities in the Indo-Pacific arena? How do you think those things are going to evolve over the coming years? That's a great question. And I'm afraid I don't have a very um, clear answer with regards to what exactly I expect is, is going to happen. I do think we're going to see the EU discuss and consider all of these peace and security elements much more. I do expect attempts at coordination across member states when it comes to activities in the Indo-Pacific and I would imagine that we're also going to see more um, engagement and dialogue and possibly even coordination with the United States. This is particularly important and particularly likely given the AUKUS fiasco, the fact that France felt very much betrayed uh, by the United States, Australia and the UK, countries that Europe considers allies, and that the Biden administration is making a very clear effort to engage with France and to engage with Europe on these issues to try and repair some of that damage um, that took place because of the, the way that AUKUS was announced. So especially when we look at the French presidency of the council, which is coming up in, in just a few months, I expect we're going to see a lot more of that. We're going to see a bit more emphasis on what can be done uh, at the peace and security level in the Indo-Pacific and probably further attempts to coordinate more closely with the United States and with other partners in the region. 
Again, we shouldn't expect anything too major in terms of the EU becoming a central security actor in the Indo-Pacific in the short term. These things are going to take a little bit of time. But regardless, I think the Indo-Pacific strategy is a pretty big step in, in the right direction. It's a very clear statement of intentions. It's a very clear outline of what the EU sees as challenges and opportunities in the region and of the fact that it wants to become more active across a number of policy issues. So I expect we're going to see movement in that direction, but again, nothing too major over the next few months. This is definitely a topic to watch very closely, so we invite everyone to follow Merrick's China Security and Risk Tracker to stay up to date on China-related security affairs. Helena, thank you very much for the conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Greg. It was great to talk to you. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.